Amen. As you grab your seat, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, we're going to look at verses 2 through 10 and kind of 2 through 11. Uh, we're, we're, we're ripping verse 11 off, uh, and it, we'll look at it this week, and we'll look at it next week as it ties into both sections of the letter uh, from Paul to Timothy. Uh, but as we continue in 1 Timothy, Children's Church really is awesome. The nursery is great. He just doesn't know yet. Uh, don't let that fool you. Uh, <laughs> there's two major themes, though, that are going in, in Paul's letter to Timothy. Um, and, and if we were to boil it down, what we would come back to is, is some statements that Paul has made already in the letter. Uh, one of those being that God desires to see people saved from all walks of life, all backgrounds, all nations. Uh, and he uses his church to proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ. So, so God desires to see people brought into a right relationship with himself. And at the same time, he, in a mysterious way, he chooses to use people like you and me to proclaim the greatness of that good news, of what he has done in Jesus. And so because of this, because God desires to see people brought into his family, and because he uses the church, a good chunk of what Paul has been writing to Timothy is about how God's people ought to conduct themselves or to radiate the truth of God's word in the midst of a broken world. And how we do that, we could come back to over and over again, how we live out the truth of God's word, how we radiate the goodness of who God is in our lives really matters, right? It, it's, it profoundly matters to us and to the world how we live out this faith in Jesus. Um, and so we have seen as we walked through First Timothy through the first five chapters and then just taking into the first two verses of chapter six, we've seen the reality of what Paul is saying to Timothy is that the gospel affects every aspect of life, right? So, so when, when a person comes to faith in Jesus and pursues faith in Christ, God leaves no stones unturned in our lives. Like the ripple effects of the good news of who Jesus is, it impacts everything of who we are. It impacts our families. It impacts our workplaces. It impacts our, 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 our interaction as citizens of a country. It interacts how we buy and sell. And then today, it's also going to look at how we, again, just live our lives in the world around us. So this is brought back into the forefront in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 10. And one of the challenges that we might have, or one of the temptations we might have in 1 Timothy 6, is that because the initial wave of this is, is focusing on teachers and what they teach, you might go, oh good, I don't teach, so this doesn't apply to me. But we would go back again to 1 Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications for pastors and for deacons. It shouldn't just be that, that pastors and deacons within a church live godly lives and then it doesn't matter what anyone else does. Right? Like that would be foolish. But rather, the, those offices that God institutes and calls to live above reproach are also how all of us 
ought to live our lives in Christ. Above reproach, living lives in a way that honors the Lord. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 11, you might go say, well, I'm not a teacher, and yet the same temptations that are true of teachers and their pursuit of truth also are true of you in the way that you live out your faith in Christ, even if you're not a teacher, okay? Even if you're not somebody who teaches in the context of the church. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 11, and we're picking up just the last uh, line of chapter, uh, verse 2 going through verse 11. He says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. In verse 2, the tail end of verse 2, we pick back up Paul again urging Timothy, teach and urge these things. You know, again, what things? What things are, is, is Timothy supposed to teach and urge other people to do and to follow? Uh, and maybe this would be unfair, but we would say the whole counsel of God's word, right? So Timothy is supposed to take all that God has said in all of his word and to teach and to urge each other. But he's also to take Paul's specific commands. So all that Paul is commanding Timothy in this letter, Paul or Timothy is to take and, and teach others. Now, one of the things that comes right to the forefront in this, is that Timothy is not supposed to just take Paul's instruction by the Holy Spirit, go, this was really good for me, and sit on it and not teach anybody else. Right? But what about for you and for me? Are the things that we learn, the things that God relays to us, the things that God passes to us through his word, what do we do with it? This urging of Paul, teach and urge these things. God's grace to us, God's grace to me, God's grace to you is not meant for us to just go, that's really good news for me. I'm really glad God told me that. I think I will keep it to myself now. All that we receive is meant to be given back out in return, right? So the question, if you just were to use an illustration in your mind, you could ask yourself, Am I a conduit or am I a cup? Right? So like all that goes into me, like a conduit, right, is open on both ends. And whatever comes through is just passing through to the next location. It's received and it's passed on. It's received and it's passed on. A cup, 
receives, and that's it. So in the way that I'm receiving in my life, it, are others benefiting from what I have learned and what I'm walking in in Christ? Or does it stop with me? I'm, I'm really maturing. I'm really learning a lot of things. Like, wow, I've really come to know a lot of things about Jesus. This is really good news for me. And it's meant to be passed. Not to be forgotten, but to be shared. So teach and urge these things, Timothy. Like, don't just take these things and sit on them. And then what follows is a caution for others, but it's also a caution for Timothy. If anyone teaches something different. Now, the first layer of this, it would be really easy, again, for Timothy to say, well, I'm not going to do that. This, is, this message is for all of you people, right? If any of you believes or teaches something different, shame on you. But it really begins, like, why would Paul tell Timothy this if it doesn't have some application to Timothy too? Right? Timothy, I just want you to be aware of the, 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 the temptation for every other teacher would be to depart from these sound words and to go after something else. Timothy, it's not about you, though. You just warn everybody else. If anyone teaches something different, and the next question that comes up is this question, and I think it's an important one that you ask. So if, if what we get is supposed to go out to other people, what is at stake if what we teach or pass along is not in line with what God has actually said. What are the stakes of that? Like, what are the stakes of if we take and we receive God's word and then we pass on something different? What's at stake? How many of you have ever played the game telephone as a kid somewhere along the line? I think we still play that, except for now there's like it's not got corded because it's wireless, but we still play it in a circle. Uh, the message is still the same, right? And you start with the message on one end, and you're supposed to pass it along. And, and the, the, the goal of the game is at the end, hopefully you have the same message. But really, as kids, what did we try to do? I'm just going to mess like one word up so that at the end it's going to be really funny. Right? And then everybody giggles like, no, they weren't talking about monkeys talking about kindergartners or whatever it is, right? And, like, and, and, and some of the fun was how much can we distort the message so that it's still like a, a message that makes sense, but it's, it's not the same message. Now, when we do it in the game of telephone, that's funny and it's cute. But what if we take God's word, which is intended to tell us who God is and how he relates to the people that he has made and what he has done to make a way of salvation for people who are far off from him and bring them near through grace, through what he has done. What's at stake if we begin to alter those messages? What's at stake if we begin to tweak the message of who God is? And what he is like. What is at stake if we, if we tweak the message about how salvation comes from God? Or how salvation is obtained by people? And you can see it doesn't take very long for all of a sudden there not to be good news. That the message, if God's character changes from what he has revealed to what we share, we're all of a sudden misrepresenting him. If the message of how he saves people is altered from what he has said and what he has done to what we share with people, all of a sudden, guess what? Salvation is no longer available because we're not sharing the message. 
So Paul says, if anybody teaches something that is different, doctrine that is different, something that, and, that, that, and they don't agree, so kind of threefold. If they teach different doctrine, if they don't agree with Jesus' words, and if they don't agree with teaching that produces godliness, there's really, it's a sign, or these are symptoms of something that is going on inside of them. And you notice that the, 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 the symptoms or what is going on in the heart of a teacher who departs from God's word is really not a glamorous set of things that Paul shares with Timothy. He says that that's a sign of somebody who is puffed up with conceit and doesn't understand anything. He says that person has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about over words. They have an unhealthy craving for things that produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people. Now, if we just stop right there, how many of you would love to be a, a part of a church that is marked by those things? How many of you would just love to step into an environment that is marked by envy, dissension, slander, and constant friction? How many of you would love to go into a place where when you leave, you have no idea what is said behind your back? Or, or you walk in and people are divided amongst themselves and constantly waging over things that don't matter? Does that make us feel warm and fuzzy? Like, I would really love to be a part of that group. Now, again, let me give you a, a small, small caution. Again, is this the message for everyone else in the world? but not for the people of LBC. How, how long does it take to move from here to here? Now, Paul is really a, a short step. You depart from God's word, and this is where you naturally go. If we lose our commitment, depart from our commitment to Jesus and his word, and we pursue our own agenda... This is what we could expect. Say it another way. When these things begin to pop up in our midst, it might be, hey, we are not clinging properly to Jesus and his word. There's like an inbuilt like little litmus test. Like when, when, when sin and dissension and envy and slander are starting to pop up in our midst, guess what those things are not from? Those things are not gifts of grace from Jesus. Those things are a symptom of our hearts being drifting away from him. And I would love to say that this is not a good chunk of the world's view of church in general. But how many people have you talked to that this is their view of church? Well, church is where people are divided. Church is where people talk badly about each other as soon as they're out of the room. Church is where people are constantly fighting over stupid things. Church is a place where people just have an appetite for their own gain and their own comfort and their own. I would love to say that we would never hear that. But the caution is there for us too. And you notice that at the, that the root of it, Paul says that, that, that this person that teaches this stuff that then becomes characteristic not just of that person but of those that they teach is born out of an unhealthy craving for something other than Jesus and his word. And again, going back to your childhood or, or maybe your kids' childhoods, how many of you ever saw the game Hungry Hungry Hippos? You love that game? 
And you like you drop the little marbles in there and, and everybody just calmly says, okay, let's all share the marbles, right? That's how that game works. Like I'll push my hippo, then you push your hippo and we'll just go in a circle nicely. Or does it descend very quickly into madness where everybody's like, and you're like, wow, I thought that game would take longer than 10 seconds. Let's play again. How many fights in your family ever started from Hungry Hungry Hippos? They're not letting me get any. Like the point was you're not supposed to get any of them, right? And you maybe had that argument with your siblings. You weren't supposed to get any. I was supposed to, like my hippo is hungrier than your hippo. But what happens when you unleash an unhealthy craving for something other than Jesus, not just in the church, but in your own life? Like what happens in my heart when there's an unhealthy craving for something other than Jesus? What is unleashed in that? And it, like, it, it's not probably, it, it, it's in the same way. It's probably not just, I'm just going to healthily pursue this thing, right? Gently pushing the hippo. Craving carries that, 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 that idea of a just a desperate pursuit of something in this. Like, when you say, I'm craving ice cream from Burger Express, you're probably your, your response is, okay, we'll go in three weeks. If you've ever been, a, I, I, I walk delicately on this one. If you have ever been around a pregnant woman with a craving, we would also say it may not always be, it may not always be born out of a rational time or place. I remember we so Jason, I'm going to pick on you for half a second. Is okay? We'll find out later. <laughs> we had two pregnancies in Africa, which is a really cool place to have pregnancy cravings, right? Because the thing that you crave, you can't have, which is really awesome. Like I'm, I, this is like I really want Chick Fil A. That's cool. It's across the ocean. Can I get you an apple? Right, what, what can I get you that would be even close to your? Like, I can't get you. Hey, 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 babe, I'm sorry. I can't get you anything that's even close to your craving. Can't get you anything that's even close to that. But if we were in the States, and it would be like, you know, at some random time, like, I'm really craving this. And sometimes, like, well, can you wait till tomorrow? Do I need to go to the grocery store right now to get peanut butter to go with it? Like, whatever. Like, what do we need? And how fast do we need it, right? Cra- craving is, it, it, it's not just a, a coherent, reasonable, rational, I think. On the 4th of July, I would like a hamburger, and I will plan accordingly. Right? It's 2 o'clock in the morning. It's like, where's Chick-fil-A? Well, it's 90 miles away, and it's closed because it's also Sunday. Right? Like it comes not, it's not born out of rationally like it, and it doesn't carry the weight of something that makes sense and it is is calmly come to the an unhealthy craving is a is a ravenous desire for that thing and paul takes that craving and lays it alongside of contentment now you can probably get any farther apart than craving is from contentment Right, like so, the, so, the, so the, the the unhinged hunger for something, put in opposition to, I'm really happy with what I have. I don't need anything else. Like, there's two things that could not be any farther apart. And he says that 
But, but the unhealthy cravings, and notice what, what the, the other symptom of this is at the end of verse 5. He says that they imagine, and all these things, they're, they're depraved in mind, they're deprived of the truth, but they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, when Jesus exists to meet my goals and achieve my comfort and my desires, I will actually arrive somewhere other than fulfillment in him. When Jesus is the means to me getting what I really want, something other than him, I will actually find myself not finding him. So then the question, diagnostic question for you and for me. Am I serving Jesus or am I trying to get him to serve me? Do I exist for him or does he exist for me? Was I created for God's glory, or was God created in order for me to achieve my glory? And that can be a really subtle shift. And we would even justify, well, doesn't God want me to have what I want? Doesn't God give me the desires of my heart? Doesn't God want me to have the things that I want to have? And if he gives me those desires, like, am I not free to pursue those things and that he would just bless them? Right, and it's a subtle little Jesus. You're kind of you're you're kind of here to meet my agenda, and it's that picture that imagining that godliness, life in Christ, is a means of personal gain. If we circle back just to First Timothy chapter four, verses six through ten, Paul encouraged Timothy in the direction of godliness and the in the right heart of. Or towards godliness, and, and if we just d- made a simple definition of godliness, it would be life that reflects faith in Jesus. Right? It walks in in relationship to this faith in Christ. But in First Timothy chapter four, verses six through ten, he says, to, he he told, uh, he wrote to Timothy previously in the letter. He says, if you put these things before the brothers again, all these things that I'm giving to you again, another angle of teach and urge these things. If you put them before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do, and then he's going to give him some ideas or an example of uh, a wrong doctrine. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And for and he finishes by saying, For to this end, for this life in Christ, this hope in Christ, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And notice, like, so, so Paul begins with, where is the hope set? It is set firmly on Jesus and him being made much of in my life. And then I walk in that, training it, pursuing life in him. And there's a subtle shift between that and how can godliness get me what I want? 
I don't think it happens as much in Libya as in some places, especially places that have traditionally been very strong. Uh, like, so if, if I were to pick on the Bible Belt for a minute, you would probably not be surprised if, if somebody dropped into a new community in the Bible Belt and they were an insurance salesman. One of the first things that they would do is probably connect to a church because being part of a church as an insurance salesman in the Bible Belt is good for business. We've lived other places with other predominant religions, and we've even heard people say, well, I don't really believe this, but it's good for business. I'm really not that committed to it, but it's, it, it, it's a lot better for my livelihood than if I were not part of it. And all of a sudden, godliness, or the pursuit of Jesus, becomes not because Jesus is the goal, but because Jesus is the means by which I think I can get what I really want. That's other than him. And Paul says this is the, the, the heart of, of different doctrine, the heart of disagreement with Jesus' words, the heart of teaching that goes against living that is, is coming out of a place of pursuing Jesus comes from a place of having godliness out of its place. So that godliness is the aim, but not because Jesus calls us to it, because it's good for me. It benefits me. But in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says it's a value in every way. Godliness is a value in every way, not as a genie in a lamp, but because it holds promise. God holds promise for this life and the life to come. And then he even says this is, this is what our whole life is built on, living in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul, Paul urges a church in a different place and in a different setting, what this life looks like to set our minds and to, uh, to toil and to strive in this way. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, he says, if, if then you have been raised with Christ, in other words, if your life is now in Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, notice what he says next, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If someone were to look at your life, would they be able to pick out what your highest priorities are? If they were just to observe you and, and to watch you, what priorities would they see just oozing out of you? Like, these are the things that this person is really excited about. And unfortunately for me, sometimes they would say, wow, Zane really likes the Utah Jazz, and that is a life of futility and suffering. I don't know why he does that, but he's, like, way too committed to this thing. They would say, he's, they, they, they would, hopefully they would say, uh, hey, wow, Zane is really committed to his family. His family is a really high priority to him. But would they see, like, wow, his, his life doesn't make sense apart from, like, his life is really geared around Jesus. If they looked at your life, well, like, what priorities would rise to the surface? And what would they say? This is your life. And Paul says, to those who are, if you have been raised with Christ, then, verse 4, he is your life. He is the consuming passion of your life. Your, like, in other words, like your appetite is for him and for his word. Your appetite is for the things that he produces. 
And, and you take that idea and you put it against, or what, what cravings are working in contrast to that appetite? So then, if, if Christ is my life, if my life is hidden in him, then in the good news in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is that Paul also paints a picture of what that looks like in, in a world that is marked by hungry, hungry hippos, right? Just endless craving and endless supplies of places that would satisfy those cravings, or at least it would promise that. But he says, but... And so, so some imagine that godliness is a means of gain and it's producing this endless appetite for things other than Jesus. But if your life is all about, like if your life is hidden in Christ and he is your object and he is your aim, then he says in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Some would say, well, if, if godliness is a means of all this other stuff, like people abusing and using the name of Jesus to get all this stuff that they want, and it leads to all of this other junk, then they might just say, well, I just don't want anything to do with Jesus. But Paul says, but don't lose sight of this. But real godliness, real pursuit of Jesus with contentment is great gain. Noticing that we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of it. Paul calls us to have a right perspective of things. Right perspective of stuff. It was a little humbling to say, on April 2nd, 1985, I entered the world completely naked. Without a possession whatsoever. And someday, I will go out the same way. And so will you. Uh, you won't take any of it with you. you. You might leave things to family members, and that might, and that might be the pursuit of your life. Is what, can I, what can I store up and what can I pass on? But Paul calls us to, for you, those things, they are passing. They're temporary. You don't, you don't take them with you. They don't go with you. Whatever you store up for yourself, all the acorns that you have stuffed into your tree, as soon as you take your last breath, you will have zero thought towards those acorns. So what things do I have a craving for right now that will not matter in a thousand years? In a million years? Guess how long eternity is? It doesn't end. If you were to stretch a rope from this end of the building to this end of the building, and it would be it would be like a, a small dot with a ball pin, pin like ballpoint pin would would that would be too big of a mark to show how big your life is in light of eternity. And yet our lives could be spent in the endless pursuit of things that will not matter in a million years. Some of the things that we are endlessly craving and pursuing won't matter in five. Won't matter in one. Won't matter as soon as we have it. And we go, oh, that wasn't, okay, I'll pursue something else now. And Paul says, the opposite of this is godliness with contentment. Contentment with, he says, if we have food and clothing, we'll be happy with those. 
And it raises another good question for us, and, it, and it's a good couple of questions. The first one is, am I really content with Jesus? If everything else were stripped away, am I really content with Jesus? It's really easy to say that when things are comfortable, right? It's like, yeah, I'm like, this is like the boat's great, but I really, like, it's all about Jesus. You know, like, boat burns up in flames, house goes down, and it's like, um, Jesus, where are you? This isn't cool, right? It's really easy outside of difficulty to say, yeah, I, like, if, if all I have is Jesus, if all I have is Christ, I'm happy. What about when we're squeezed? Not to say that we're the contentment here is not just foolishly happy. <laughs> it doesn't matter that you squeezed me. But is there an underlying peace because I have Jesus or because he has me? And another good question to ask in the midst of, like, in, in diagnosing, is this, is this a, a craving for something else or is it just a, a desire that God has given? What good thing do you need that you don't have? What good thing do you need? Need is the operative word there. Not what good thing do you want that you don't have. What good thing do you need that God is with, like, is God withholding anything that you need from you? And our, our initial knee-jerk temptation might be to say yes, but it's probably more like I have something good that I want that I don't have. But what good thing do you need that he has not provided? I love the promise in, in, in Peter's letter. He says uh, that the Spirit has given us everything we need for what? Life and godliness. Like, the Spirit of God is providing all that you need for life and godliness. And yet we have these competing appetites, these competing hungers. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, Paul's writing from prison to a church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, and he addresses the same thing for him personally. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And he's talking about them providing some help and assistance to him. And notice what he says next. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. Who likes that one? I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Give me that, like, second half. Love it. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. And then we have the verse that we have ripped out of context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You can live in need because of him who strengthens you. You can live in a time of being brought low because it is him who strengthens you. You can live in a time of being squeezed because of him who gives you strength, not because of how awesome you are, right? But what we have said, I can play in the NBA because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to be the first NBA rookie who's 38 years old and five foot eight, and not in shape. I'm going to be awesome. Rookie of the year coming up. I can do all things. 
I can face, you can face, if you are in Christ, you can face whatever it is. And that does not mean that that's just like, that just makes it easy. Paul, like, can you imagine like what, what the, the process for Paul where he says, I have learned, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. What experience do you think that Paul has? So in verse 12, he can say, I know how to be brought low. I know how to be brought low. Uh, I'm going off script here. It's not on screen for you guys. Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 21. Paul goes on, he, and he says this, uh, he goes, I, I'm going out of my mind, I'm making a fool of myself, but I'm doing it for your benefit. He says, to my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, verse 21, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. He said, Paul, how, are you, how did you learn to be brought low? He just said, imprisonments, labors, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. So, so five times I was beaten with a whip thirty-nine times. So that's, I'm not great at math, but that's just under two hundred times with a whip. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and he was left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And Paul says, I have learned to be brought low. He didn't learn it by reading about it in a book. You probably have not learned about suffering from a book. You have learned about pressures of life through pressures of life. But what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy is those things are, and in Philippians, are those things are honing our desire and our appetite for the only one who can satisfy. In fact, as he goes on in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, again, he, he reverses to the contrast of, of contentment, but he goes back to the power of our cravings and what they produce. He says, but those who desire to be rich, those who pursue their craving, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. How much different is that if we were to view our, our cravings for something other than Jesus are leading us to a giant snare and a hole in the ground? 
They are leading, like their, their end would be our destruction. When we were uh, in Senegal, we saw it again. There's a guy leading a sheep, and the sheep is just like, hey, where are we going? We're going for a walk. And you're like, you're probably going to die soon. And in our pursuit of our appetite for something other than Jesus, the end result is that like, like we go, hey, this is really great. I'm pursuing it. I'm running after this thing. Life is so great. Life is so grand. And then it's like, ow, that hurt. Where did that come from? Like, that was the end the whole time. I want to give you kind of a, a scary, maybe it's a scary prayer, in Proverbs chapter 30. One of the, 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 the things that I would encourage you to, to think about and, and pray and incorporate in thinking of how you pursue life in the midst of a broken world. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Again, because Paul is saying those who pursue after riches, those who run after riches, those who run after comfort, those who run after making much of themselves— are, are running towards ruin. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, uh, it says that in, in verse 1, it's the words of Agur, the son of Jacka. It says, Two things I ask of you, speaking of two things I ask of the Lord. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And then notice this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be fool and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, teach me contentment. Give me what I need so that I will still be hungry for the Lord. Withhold from me those things that would produce in me an appetite for something that leads away from him. I say that's scary because what if God began to answer that prayer and to begin to refine and remove the extra and left us with what is necessary? And again, 30,000 foot view, you go, okay, I can do with what's necessary. And we think of Paul's word, I, I've learned what it means to be brought low, to hunger and to fix my eyes on the one who is my hope. In verse 10, again, the contrast to this, the, the desire for riches, but then the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And we've heard this, uh, or you, you've heard that for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, or money is the, the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, again, this unhealthy craving, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then he contrasts this and says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. That personal craving for something other than Jesus will lead us away from Jesus. For those that, that for the teachers and the, and the pastors, that, 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 that caution comes very strong in verse 3. If anyone departs and teaches after these things. I don't have to give you a laundry list of people that show up in the news, pastors or otherwise. Here you go, they're just, they're just, they're just mooching for money. 
They're after a bigger jet. They're after a bigger ministry. They're after a bigger house. They're after a bigger name. They're after a bigger stature. But here's the thing. We could, again, the caution is we could look at that and we could identify it in other people. And yet, when somebody else looks at us like, what's my stuff? Get off my stuff. Those are my precious things. The love and the pursuit of, and it says of money, but the craving for anything. If I can't say this enough times, the craving for anything other than the Lord will lead us to everywhere other than a contented life in him. And Paul obviously just said, you need food, you need clothing. You have, you have things that you need, that money necessitates, right? You, like, you, you, you walk around naked, you go to jail. Like, you need clothes. I don't think Paul would say, all of the things that you have are wrong. However, are those your life? How attached to them are you? What hold do they have in our hearts and in our lives? And, and, and if you're like me, and you come at this and you, and you say, let's have an honest look at our life, you're going to go, I have an unhealthy attachment to things. I have an unhealthy desire for things. I have an unhealthy pursuit of things. There's, there's appetites that are waging war within me. They're probably waging war within you. I don't know if you talk to you, uh, about finances and the, and the things that you're pursuing in your family, but do you ever stop and go, like, why, why do we want what we want? How does it get framed within a life that is pursuing Jesus? And then notice, though, he says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Maybe the best way that we could think about this is that we, we think about, uh, we're talking about cravings and appetite. We could talk about actual diet things. When you are cutting out sugar out of your diet or restricting sugar in your diet, how strong is the desire for a cupcake when you see a cupcake? Now you smell that thing. You're like, man, sugar has a smell. It's good. The answer here spiritually that Paul lays out that is contrasted with the way that we normally think of, if we were to say dieting, Paul's not calling for portion control. He says, run away. When you see the craving, don't see how close you can get to it. How close can I get to the donut without tasting the donut? Well, I could eat half the donut and I still wouldn't violate my, my, my diet. Okay, well, I could eat a donut and a half, and I still haven't hit the two-donut limit. Okay, well, they sell donuts in a dozen, and I only ate eight. But you see, we are geared, like, when we unleash our craving and we go after it, whether it's food, whether it's money, whether it's whatever else, you could look up and go, I pursued that a little bit farther than I thought I would. Paul says, don't mess with it. Run. When, you, when, when, when God, by his grace, reveals that we have an appetite for something other than him, the answer is not, well, how close can I get to it without actually doing that? It is run. 
run where? When he says pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, where do those things come from? Come from God. Run towards the giver rather than running towards the cravings. So, overarching thing, we do a quick recap. Hold fast to God and his word. Is, is Jesus my highest aim? Is he the greatest desire of my longing heart? Or is he just the means to what something else that I'm trying to obtain? Is living for the Lord just the means by which I can have a decent career, a well-behaved family, enough money in the bank account for when I retire? Just like I, I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm just massaging God's ego to say you have enough of me so that you could give me things in return, or is my life hidden in Him and He is my highest aim? He is what I most want. And here's the great news, right? If if we are in Christ and the Spirit of God dwells in us, there is also an appetite for the things of God. Will you pursue and feed? the Spirit, and pursue His leading in your life? Or will you run after other cravings? Will you pray with me? God, we thank You that You are worthy of our lives given over to You. God, we recognize that we live in a world that is broken and that that there are so many competing offers of satisfaction and fulfillment for our lives uh, that if we would just do this or just do that, that we would find contentment and happiness and, and joy. And yet, and I think we would recognize that, that in almost every case, we have found those things to be lacking what they promise. God, would you increase our hunger for you, for your word, for righteousness in our lives with you as the aim. God, would you show us really clearly in our lives where where we are are using you to get something else? And would you recalibrate our hearts to worshiping you because you are worthy of it all? God, would you root out in our hearts the activity that looks good on paper or looks good in front of others and yet is disconnected from our right faith and our right walk with you. And when you turn it into heartfelt affection for you. God, in the midst of wherever we might be in, a, in abundance or in stark need and being brought low, would you help us to learn contentment in you? So that you are what we most want And your way in our life is what we most want to pursue. Would you root out and and help us to see where we are craving things other than you. Show us their end, but help us to run to you in faith. We thank you that the way of salvation wasn't made through our ability to to chase one appetite over another, but it was brought to us through your death, your burial, your resurrection, your life. 
given to us by grace. Help us to walk in that grace by faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you stand and close and worship with us?
right, just some quick announcements. Um, we still have small groups going on. If you're not a part of one of those, we'd love for you to come. We have one on Tuesday and Thursday nights. They start at 6, then they go to 8 p.m., or a little longer. Um, and then we have a young men's Bible study that's at 9 a.m. on Saturday mornings. That's down in the fellowship hall. So if you're a young man, late teens, early 20s, we'd love for you to come and be a part of that. It's been a great time so far. Or yeah, yeah. If you're, if you're in your early 50s and you want to come be a part, you can come too. Um, continue to pray for Libby. Continue to do that, 5.56 a.m. and p.m., just keeping our, our eyes on what God has called us to do. Um, and then this coming Sunday, uh, April 23rd, we have a business meeting right after the main service, so everyone's welcome to be a part of that. We have a few things that we're going to be talking about and voting on, so uh, please come to that. And then there is cake in the fellowship hall, so if you guys want cake, there's cake down there. There's a cravings. Yeah, we're going to finish this sermon up with cake. I'm sorry. I think I got set up by Nicole on that one. Um, let's see. So she said, hey, there's cake down there. And then um, there are business meeting notes that Nicole has, just so you can know what we talked about last time, and you can be prepared for that meeting. Anything else? I think we're good. All right. Would y'all pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for today. Uh, we thank you that, um, that you have removed the veil, that we are able to see things in light of eternity, uh, that you have told us in your word to uh, seek your kingdom first, and all of these things that we need will be given to us. And so, Lord, uh, I pray that this week that you would just set in our hearts and our minds that we would be about your business, about making you disciples that make disciples. So, Father, just give us the eyes to see, uh, give us the word have the boldness to uh, approach those conversations that you have called and set up for us to do. And so, Lord, we thank you for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.